Welcome to Kelly Dry's Full Spectrum Podcast, bringing together thought leaders in the technology, media, and telecommunications industries to discuss legal issues that are expected to impact today's organizations and tomorrow's marketplace. Show notes and additional episodes are available at kellydryfullspectrum.com. For more in-depth commentary, head to our blog at comlawmonitor.com. This podcast is produced by the Kelly Dry Communications Practice Group. The FCC held an open meeting on May 19th covering a number of subjects. On today's podcast, we'll hear from attorneys in Kelly Dry's communications practice talk about three of the topics. First, Hank Kelly will speak on robocalls. Tom Cohen will then discuss ACAM support. And finally, Mike Dover will discuss priority services. All right, let's get started. Hank, I'll pass the mic to you. Sure. Good. Thank you. Um, uh, you know, today's, today's uh, FCC uh, meeting, I think, was a pretty important one when it comes to uh, combating robocalls. They issued a fairly substantive uh, order today um, that, that has the intention of really trying to attack and get at um, inbound foreign-originated uh, calls that are robocalls. And uh, they've set up several uh, standards and obligations on the, the gateway providers that oftentimes um, provide the point of entry uh, for, the, for the robocalls. Um, they, they've noted that approximately two thirds of current robocalls originate from overseas. And so today's, uh, uh, today's FCC ruling in order um, really is intended to try to attack that, that problem. Um, I think it, it's, I'll just start off by talking about the, the heading or, the, or at least the, the dockets that it's, it's in. And I think it's kind of interesting how, how many rulings and orders there have been over the years. Um, so today's order was the Consumer and Government Affairs Bureau docket 1759, sixth report and order, and the seventh further notice of proposed rulemaking, which means there's likely to be a seventh report and order, um, as well as the wireline competition docket 1797, which is the fifth report in order, order on reconsideration, and fifth further notice of proposed rulemaking. Um, so the, there's the, the order that came out is really kind of broken into three sections, and I'll just kind of go through the three of them. It talks about the gateway providers and the obligations that are imposed on this new class of, of, of regulated entities called gateway providers. Um, it addresses uh, a, a specific order on reconsideration that relates to that provision on the the, the new requirements uh, imposed on gateway providers, uh, a, a petition for reconsideration that was filed by CTIA, CTIA back in October of 2020. And then there's a further notice of proposed rulemaking that really tries to get at uh, some additional issues that the FCC wants to, wants to address. So with respect to the gateway provider provision, um, the, uh, the, as I mentioned, the gateway providers are kind of a point of entry for foreign originated robocalls. And, and uh, this order adopted by the FCC uh, addresses and sets several authentication and robocall mitigation requirements on these types of entities. The FCC defined a gateway provider as a US-based intermediate provider that receives a call directly from a foreign originating provider or a foreign intermediate provider at the gateway provider's US-based facilities before transmitting the call downstream to other US-based providers. Now, when they, the FCC defined what a, a US-based means, 
they define that as a provider that has facilities actually physically located in the United States um, and, and a point of presence it has the ability to, to pick up a call. So just to, you know, so it's just a little bit about the industry. There, there are oftentimes carriers that serve as gateway providers that have facilities that are, that, that are serve as points of entry uh, for foreign originated calls that are destined to locations in the United States. Um, but some of those carriers, are, they're, they're already regulated by the FCC. This is intended, these rules are really intended to get at a, a, a separate section or a separate a class of, of service providers, not carriers, not even necessarily inter internet service providers, or I'm sorry, interconnected VoIP providers, um, not necessarily previously regulated by the FCC based on what they would, they could be have SIP trunks that connect to a foreign based uh, provider that, that brings calls in. And once the calls enter the United States, um, oftentimes those gateway providers would then uh, have an interconnection arrangement with, with another carrier and calls would then be directed to those carriers um, for ultimate uh, destinations on the PSTN. So these rules really are intended to get at the gateway provider, whether they be a carrier, a voice provider, or just somebody with a router that has the ability to, to act as a point of entry for uh, foreign originated calls. So um, the other part of the definition of a gateway provider is that the calls have to, uh, the, 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 the gateway provider receives a call directly from a provider. And there it means not just another uh, carrier from a foreign place, but um, any, any foreign provider upstream of the gateway provider in the call path. So it's really intended to address not just uh, foreign based uh, carriers that have facilities that, that that transmit calls to the United States, but also similar unregulated entities uh, in a foreign country. Um, these, these rules also apply to cellular roaming calls, um, which is an issue that I'll get to in a second because that was an issue that was raised by CTIA. Um, these rules uh, become uh, obligations and become effective uh, within 30 days from the publication of the Federal Register. And, and thereafter, once these rule goes in, rules go into effect, the gateway, provider gateway providers have to submit a certification and a mitigation plan, a, ro a robocall mitigation plan uh, to, to register with the robocall, robocall mitigation uh, database. Every gateway provider will be obligated uh, to have a robocall mitigation plan registered with the database. Um, they'll also have to take reasonable steps and explain what those reasonable steps are that they are taking to mitigate robocall traffic, whether they've implemented stir shaken or not. The gateway providers robocall mitigation plans have to describe specifically um, what actions they're taking to mitigate robocalls that are um, uh, inbound uh, from foreign entities and state that they're also adhering to those practices and certify that they're adhering to those practices. Um, in, importantly, that uh, those gateway providers that don't submit a sufficient plan, a robocall mitigation plan, and a certification will no longer be, de will they'll be delisted and they won't be allowed to be in the robocall mitigation database. And thereby, um, they'll, they will be precluded from qualifying as a gateway provider. Notably, um, other carriers within the United States are precluded from uh, and can and have to block calls that are inbound 
from a gateway provider that is not registered in the, in the robocall mitigation database. And so here's where the FCC really uh, sort of stops the ability of an unregulated entity of having calls come into the United States that are robocalls, putting them into the network without the FCC being able to reach the inbound provider. Intermediate providers that take inbound calls from a gateway provider um, have to make sure that those gateway providers are registered with the, with the robocall mitigation database. And, and if they're not, then those calls have to be blocked. So the gateway providers, once they get their robocall mitigation plan uh, within the database, um, they, they also have to take steps to begin implementing Stir Shaken uh, and, and must be um, have the ability to authenticate caller ID using Stir Shaken by January 1st of 2023. So that's another major, major, a major issue or a major opportunity for the FCC to sort of stop the, the robo, um, robocalling. Uh, because not only will the, the carriers within the United States or other service providers within the United States be obligated to authenticate uh, the calls and use stir shaken, uh, but now these unregulated entities will also be in a position to, uh, to do the same thing. Uh, gateway providers um, have to also uh, respond to traceback requests uh, within 24 hours. Uh, they have to block illegal traffic when they are notified by the FCC that traffic is illegal. Those calls must be locked. Um, there are calls and telephone numbers that are on the do not originate list. And gateway providers will also be obligated to block those calls. Now, the FCC uh, declined at this time uh, to not require gateway providers to block calls, even if analytics would indicate that those calls are, are highly likely to be robocalls. So the FCC did not impose an obligation that, that gateway providers block those calls. Many, many, many carriers in the United States do block calls once they get into, into their network if the analytics would indicate that the calls are robocalls, but there's, the FCC declined to impose that obligation on, on the gateway providers. And, and then finally, the other obligation, a major one, is uh, the gateway providers have an obligation to know their upstream providers. So um, again, that's the, probably the, the most major part of this order. Also, uh, CTIA had made a request uh, for the FCC to reconsider and not impose uh, call blocking on, on wireless calls or, or not impose the obligation that other foreign-based carriers that are bringing calls into the United States, particularly wireless roaming calls into the United States that they, um, CTI did oppose the obligation to uh, have those, those entities be in the robocall mitigation database uh, in, and in the, this order, uh, in, in the order on reconsideration part of this order, the FCC declined uh, to do that. In fact, did impose the obligation. Uh, the gateway providers that, that bring calls in have to be registered on the, on the, in the the robocall mitigation database. Um, and then finally, um, the FCC also issued further notice of proposed rulemaking to try to seek additional ways that the FCC could uh, find ways to uh, mitigate uh, robocalls. Um, they've, they've asked for comment on whether they should broaden the class of providers that are subject to certain mitigation obligations, including uh, the obligations for the gateway providers. So maybe there's other entities out there that have an, should be having 
additional obligations to take reasonable steps to mitigate uh, robocalls. Um, also, uh, the, there are some obligations uh, that the FCC has imposed over, over times that, that don't apply to all domestic providers. Um, and so, like, for example, the, um, the obligation to, uh, to block calls in certain circumstances, there, there's no rule out there that obligates all providers, intermediate providers within the United States that have already existing systems within the United States. Uh, there's no call blocking requirements um, on those carriers. And the FCC is, is asking for further comment on whether that's something that they, uh, that the FCC should, should consider imposing. Um, one, one other thing that I want to talk about, uh, is be my final point. Um, the FCC also, uh, made note that they, um, will begin to take, to impose substantial fines and forfeitures for violations of, of the FCC's, uh, rules and regulations. So, um, the, on a per call basis, they've said that this order says that there will be a maximum forfeiture amount for each violation of the proposed mandatory blocking requirements of $22,021 per violation. Um, now that's on the non-carriers. Uh, that's the maximum forfeiture amount that the FCC believes that the rules would permit to impose on the non-carriers. Common carriers can be assessed a maximum forfeiture of $220,213 for each violation. So those are pretty substantial fines. And, and obviously the FCC uh, is taking robocalling and continues to take robocalling uh, very seriously. Uh, I think we would all expect that the FCC over the next several months and even several years are gonna take, uh, take, these, take these new rules very seriously. Uh, I think they're gonna um, you know, take their enforcement obligations uh, very seriously. And, and so I think uh, you know, it's a pretty substantial order that was issued today and it uh, shows the FCC serious about this issue. Hey, Hank, thanks so much for all that detail on what is a critical item for so many providers out there. I mean, everybody's seen the publicity about robocalls. Every politician wants to snuff them out. And the FCC is saying, you know what, we're going to do our best to do it. And so it seems like, you know, Hank, from what you've said, uh, people better be aware of this, providers, and stay on top of it. That's right, Tom. Absolutely. So uh, for any of you out there who want to know more about it, you know, please get with my colleague, Hank Kelly. And uh, I'm going to pick it up from there and go to a new notice of proposed rulemaking about uh, universal service in high-cost areas. And this uh, pertains to what's known as the ACAM carriers. Uh, these are smaller uh, incumbent local exchange carriers uh, that have uh, been drawing universal service report uh, since it was started in 1984 and converted over to this new scheme uh, some six or so years ago. And let me set the table here in terms of high cost universal service support at the FCC. And high cost support goes in these areas where the cost to serve is higher, far higher 
than average in this country. Uh, you know, these are areas that are less dense, uh, way out in rural areas. And since 2011, the FCC has been trying to convert this traditional high cost program over to one that focuses on bringing high speed broadband to unserved areas. So not high cost anymore, but unserved. And they've been able to make that sort of conversion, you know, largely complete uh, with uh, the areas served by the larger incumbent providers known as the price cap carriers, AT&T, Verizon, Lumen now, you know, Frontier, Windstream and alike. For the smaller incumbent providers, and there's some 750, 800 or so of them out there, the FCC has taken a more phased approach. And it said, these are smaller providers, their financial situation is more challenging, the areas they may serve are more challenging. And so what we're gonna do is try to help them move over to provide this higher performance broadband. And so going back to 2016 and then 2018, they built upon what's known as the Alternative Connect America cost model, the ACAM, and said to these providers, if you want to choose to get your money through this model and commit to upgrading your broadband service, uh, and it was first the four in one, 10 in one, 25 and three megabits per second by, uh, you know, up downstream and three upstream. We will do that. And so over the past six years, almost 500 of these smaller providers opted into a series of ACAM programs and Today, they're receiving 1.1 billion to cover 1.17 million locations. And so that's where they stand today. And in 2020, a group of them came to the FCC and said, we're willing to commit to even higher speeds uh, above 25 and three if you give us additional support to do it. And they filed a petition. And the petition sat out there. And then this new event comes, the infrastructure bill and the broadband provisions, and particularly the broadband equity access and deployment program, $42.5 billion, largely for deployment. And the deployment needs to be 100 by 20 megabits per second. So all of a sudden, we sort of have a new benchmark. We've gone from four to one to 10 to one to 25 and three, now we're up to 100 by 20. And that law was signed last November. And in December of last year, the ACAM coalition came back with a new proposal to the FCC saying, we will commit to deploy to all these locations that don't have 100 by 20 uh, if you will give us additional support. And 
We wanted it over a longer term. And so uh, what happened today is the FCC took that proposal of the ACAM coalition and adopted it as a notice of proposed rulemaking, seeking comment on many aspects of it. And as I say, one of the goals here is now, how do they meld it with the bead program and the requirements there? Uh, and how do they ensure that these carriers, the areas they serve, all of a sudden don't become areas where bead funding goes in, but those areas get similar service. And for the bead program, as I said, they have to provide 100 by 20 meg service, and they have to do it within four years of getting an award. And let's just say the awards come out in a couple of years. So sort of in six years, all these unserved and then underserved areas, which don't have 100 by 20, would be getting it. And so what the FCC put out is uh, this notice of proposed rulemaking saying, let's uh, look at the new parameters for an enhanced ACAM program. And some of the questions that are in play are, um, first of all, the, the number of locations that should get 100 by 20 service, because some of these locations are pretty remote. And so uh, should it be 90%, should it be higher? Other questions, uh, how quickly should they build? Uh, should you know the number of areas be 30% within two years uh, and then increasing by 10% a year? Uh, should it go faster? Um, what about the amount of money? Uh, as I said before, the amount of money was 1.1 million uh, per year, uh, the amount of money would increase here to just about 1.5 billion a year, excuse me, 1.1 billion, 1.5 billion. So that's a considerable increase there. Other questions, what if someone doesn't want to opt into this program, but they're already participating? What should their obligations be going forward or should they just end? Um, you know, what about if another provider who's unsubsidized is providing service in this area? Should it be funded? Uh, what's the total support term? The ACAM coalition wanted funding to start this year and go for a dozen years. Is that appropriate? Um, and then, you know, as I said, all sorts of questions about the ACAM eligible providers and how they participate in total, in part, and alike. Um, also, in this notice of proposed rulemaking, uh, commissioners Carr and Starks uh, wanted to make sure that these providers have obligations uh, regarding cybersecurity and supply chain. And so they've asked questions about that. And in a sense, that syncs up with the bead program obligations as well. So as you can see over the years, there's been sort of an evolution in terms of obligations uh, to get high performance, reliable broadband out to uh, unserved and underserved areas. So 
this uh, new notice of proposed rulemaking will go out for comment. Uh, if you have some sense of it, you know, maybe the FCC can get it done later in the year. I mean, I think the aim is to get commitments from the ACAM participants uh, before bead money starts flowing, because if they can get those commitments, then the bead money doesn't have to go there and it can be used for other purposes. So can they finish by the end of the year? They'd like to try to, or if they can't, they'd like to get commitments you know, soon after that. So uh, a very important proceeding, as I said, you've got uh, some 500 smaller providers who are invested in this, who have a stake. It's a considerable amount of money uh, flowing here as well. Uh, and so I'm sure there'll be a lot of interest here. Hank, question. Yeah, Tom, I, I have a question. Um, so who are some of the players that might benefit from the funding that comes here? Obviously, it's not just going to be Verizon and AT&T. There's other carriers. And, and what's what are some of the technologies that they're using to be able to pr provide the broadband at, that, at those speeds? I mean, yeah, a real good point. First of all, the big price cap guys, Verizon, AT&T, this is not them. This is TDS. This is Arvig. This is, you know, providers like that. And then going down to hundreds you've never heard of unless they are your provider locally. So they are critical providers in each local area, but they're not nationally, you know, known brain, brand names. What they'd like to roll out is fiber if they can. They, in a sense, future-proof them uh, their networks, but also sort of hold off the competition because as you might expect, there might be a, uh, another cable, co a cable company nearby, a wireless provider nearby, 5G, for instance. There could be satellite, Starlink, or another entity up there in low Earth orbit. Uh, so, you know, they... Again, these are real small guys, and what they love to deploy is something that protects them, inoculates them in their business for the future. Great, thanks. So um, with that, let me turn it over to my colleague, Mike Dover, talk about the next item. Mike? Uh, thanks, Tom. Uh, the, the last item on our discussion is related to the commission's unanimous adoption of the report and order uh, seeking to modernize priority services for national security and emergency response uh, to streamline the rules and to include next generation technology, including IP-based voice data and video in the commission's priority services rules. Um, the report and order, as well as the uh, commissioner's comments in today's meeting, noted that the rules haven't been updated in over 20 years, and the nation's infrastructure has evolved well beyond the uh, circuit switch technology that the rules are currently based on. And so the uh, adoption of today's report and order and new rules specifically uh, gear 
uh, priority services to facilitate IP-based voice services as a priority, and it streamlines the existing rules to ensure that IP-based technology fall within the priority rules. Uh, generally, the rules cover administration and responsibilities, um, but specifically for telecommunications priority services, today's adopted rules uh, eliminates certain outdated references and expands the list of services that are eligible for priority treatment, updates the rules to reflect uh, current commission oversight practices, and expands the scope of federal employees authorized to invoke the priority treatment. In addition, the adopted rules enhance the protection of data and clarify the timing and level of effort for provisioning of and restoring service. Importantly, however, the commission declined to amend the rules to require service providers to report provisioning and restoration times to the DHS. Uh, as to wireless priority service, uh, today's adopted rules uh, clarify operation of priority levels and ex also expands the type of services in groups of eligible users. So in short, uh, today's rules uh, reflect um, changes to the uh, list of services eligible for wireless priority service to reflect newer technologies. Um, to, it expands the wireless priority service eligibility to include additional users. It clarifies the operation of priority levels to make clear that higher priority services take precedent over those with lower priority and it discusses uh, today's order and the rules um, discuss the applicability of the wireless priority service to FirstNet network. In addition, uh, the adopted rules eliminate the requirement that priority access must be invoked on a per call basis and clarifies the extent to which preemption and degradation may be used to facilitate prioritized communication. Again, however, the commission declined to adopt additional reporting requirements, which were proposed by NTIA. Um, all of the commissioner's comments were favorable as, as to the report and order and the adopted rules um, and Commissioner Starks and uh, Commission Chair Rosenworcel uh, noted the importance of the rules, especially with the upcoming hurricane season approaching. Uh, the rules will take effect 30 days after publication in the Federal Register. Hey, Mike, thanks a lot. You know, each month, the Kelly Dry team here, joined by our other colleagues, uh, Chip Yorgaitis, Winifred Brantle, will give you a first take on what happened at the FCC's meeting that day. Should you have you know, any questions, we'll be glad to work with you. So thanks, everybody, and have a good day. The views and ideas expressed on this program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views of Kelly Dry and Warren LLP, its staff, or management.